Good morning. It is great to be with you again. If you have your Bible, would you be turning to 1 Peter? 1 Peter, let me say again, we're thankful that you are here, thankful for the chance to be together. Uh, we missed you last week. Certainly it's good to be gone in a sense and get to enjoy something like that, but it's really good to be back home. And we missed all of you and getting to see you, and we're thankful uh, for those who filled in and uh, appreciate the uh, willingness of the elders to sort of allow us to take time like that from time to time and do things. And uh, I warned them last week when we got there on Sunday morning, I said, technically, uh, that was kind of my first ever meeting, I guess, kind of by myself. I'd done some one nights, you know, part of a meeting. So I said, I don't know if that scares you or, you know, warned them ahead of time. But uh, I think things went well. We had a good time. Appreciate the group, especially, uh, that came up on Tuesday night. I think there's about 12 uh, that came on the bus, and so I uh, appreciate all of that. If I can give you just a couple of announcements, too, to kind of continue before we get started here. Uh, Charles whispered in my ear there that uh, many of you know David Payton, who's preached down for the Lafayette congregation for a long time, been affiliated there. Uh, they have diagnosed him with ALS recently, and so if you know that family uh, and Brother David and his work down there, we want to, to certainly add them to our prayer list. Uh, the second thing is just connected with our trunk retreat on Wednesday night. We'd love to have you uh, be with us. I haven't checked the weather ahead of time, but hopefully it'll be uh, a good day and good evening to do that. That being said, we'd like to try again to have it outside. We've not done that in several years. Uh, one problem with having it outside was that our parking lot wasn't very well lit at the time. Uh, but we appreciate Gary Grove and, and many others who have taken part in that uh, and helped us. And, and uh, Clayton and I I drove by the other morning, like real early in the morning before it was even light outside, and we said it looks like, you know, if you come down the mountain back here and you look at the building there, it's lit up, you can see it, so uh, we're really thankful for that, it helps, and so we think we'll have better lighting out there, and the only thing that would bring us back inside would be rain, if it were to be raining or rainy on Wednesday night, but we'll plan right now, if you're going to decorate your trunk, uh, to come and, and plan to do that, to park out there, uh, and we'll, we'll open up our trunks and do it again outside where we can see folks. Uh, also, don't forget that we plan to have a chili supper. Uh, or meal before services, there is still a sign-up sheet today on the, on the table in the foyer, and uh, please sign up. Uh, included in that is, is if something is full or it kind of fills up, please go ahead and write your name down and plan to bring something, if you would. Uh, this is kind of just a good time to remind all of our folks as we think about these kinds of meals that it's always good if you plan to stay to bring something. It kind of happens with our lunch from time to time. We want to invite folks to stay. We want to invite folks to come. Uh, but we also want to make sure that we have enough food. So whether you come for lunch or whether you're planning to come Wednesday night, please always plan to bring a, enough for your family. And as long as we all do that, then that should mean that we're taken care of. But, but we'd love to have you earlier on Wednesday night for the Chili Supper, absolutely without a doubt for our Bible study and time of worship and services. Uh, but as well, we always look forward to seeing our young people and, and enjoying some time of fellowship after our services on, on Wednesday night. If you turn to 1 Peter, as you open your Bible there, if you're a person who likes to make notes, you may already have some words underlined or some phrases that you notice there. Peter uses words to, to in his language to give us some beautiful descriptions. I, I love parts of, of Peter's epistles. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, he talks about an inheritance that is incorruptible undefiled and does not fade away. I don't know about you, but we all understand what an inheritance is. But when you explain it, that this inheritance that is in heaven reserved for us is incorruptible and undefiled, it really encourages us to think about wanting to obtain that inheritance. In chapter 2 and verse 9, he could simply say, hey, you guys, you're, you're God's people, right? We'd understand that. that. That makes sense to us. But when he goes further and talks about a, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, special, 
Isn't that something we all long for is to be special? Someone to think that we are special? We're God's own special people. And even over in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, it's not so much a beautiful description, but it's certainly very descriptive. The idea of a pig returning to the mud and a dog returning to its own vomit, right? Not beautiful maybe per se, but it certainly strikes home and we understand what he's talking about there. Peter uses two words that we want to talk about this morning. And if you have a bulletin in front of you and you see the title, we're going to talk about three words in total. But Peter uses two words that we want to notice to begin with that require some understanding. It requires some discussion. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. The first one is in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 2. Peter says that he is writing to those who are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Well, what's foreknowledge? You know what that is? Let, let's come back and talk about it. Let's go ahead and notice the second word is in chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 2. It's really a continuation, of course, from verse number 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. For he who has suffered has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but, on the other hand, this person that's being described should live for the will of God. Now, we're talking about foreknowledge. We're talking about the will of God. The human part that comes in that you see in your, your title, if you have the bulletin in front of you, is that when we consider these two words, we also have to consider man's choices. Man's choice. So these are three things here, three words that we want to seek to understand them, first of all, this morning. Then seek to see how they connect. And then finally, we want to notice what that really even means for us. Let's make some applications. So number one, let's notice, first of all, all of these things individually. All of these things, uh, all of these words individually. Number one, God has foreknowledge. God has foreknowledge. Now, this may be the toughest of all three because of our preconceived ideas. What do, what do you think of when I say the word foreknowledge or that God has foreknowledge? We'll get there in just a minute what many people think of. But first, though, what is foreknowledge? Well, we know the word knowledge, right? That's to know something, to, to be able to know something. It's the idea of knowledge. What do you think of when you hear the word for? Well, now, for some people, that's what Bob yells when he hits a golf ball that goes a little too far to the left or the right. Yeah, Bob says he's never had to yell for before when he's played golf. But, yeah, sometimes that's what some people think of. But really, of course, in this way, for means the idea of before something, right, or in front of. So, again, some of you are like, I know that. You don't have to explain this to me. But just in case, foreknowledge is the idea of before knowledge or the idea of knowing something before it happens. Lots of people claim to have this sometimes, right? They claim to have foreknowledge about something, and sometimes we're right. I could stand before you right now, and I could say it's going to rain this week. And it might rain, and I might be right that it rained. I can't tell you what day or what minute it's going to start, but, but I could say, well, I've got foreknowledge that it's going to rain. And, and again, we might act like that sometimes, but that's not what we're talking about when we talk about God's foreknowledge. So God has foreknowledge. How do we know that? Well, of course, we're going to notice from the word of God. Do you remember in Daniel chapter 2? Daniel chapter 2, God had foreknowledge of the succession of kingdoms that would come after the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. 
And that was shared by Daniel. Do you remember Daniel chapter 2? Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and it's the statue. I told you, I think there's still some in there, but we've gotten some of the posters in uh, that are in the, the uh, workroom, the teacher's workroom, that you can either look at, or I think there's a few. You might could borrow one and, and take home or in a classroom. But that statue that Nebuchadnezzar has the dream about, and Daniel explains to him that it is his kingdom that is the first the first uh, kingdom, but then it's going to come down from there, the Medo-Persians and the, the Greeks and the Romans, and there's going to be this succession. God details that through Daniel by the prophecy and by the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. God foreknew what was going to come in the way of these earthly kingdoms. Also in Isaiah chapters 44 and 45, I think it kind of splits the end of 44 and the beginning of 45, but God calls King Cyrus king of Persia by name. It says King Cyrus and it states that Cyrus would serve God's purpose by allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem, right? We're familiar that they were carried away into captivity and here it talks about King Cyrus is going to allow them to return to Jerusalem. You say, well, that's not really a big deal that Cyrus is going to serve God's purpose, but it is a big deal because when God says it by the mouth of Isaiah, it is 150 years before it actually takes place. When we do the math and we do the history and look, when God says King Cyrus will serve a purpose and allow the Jews to return, it's 150 years before it happens. How did God know that? Well, that's God's foreknowledge. Also, we think about the book of Isaiah as a whole. We won't look at each specific verse, but the book of Isaiah in many places discusses the many verses that describe what would take place with Jesus the Christ long before he ever came to this earth. We try to always say thank you to Robert and, and to Gabe and, and many of our men, Jeff, so many others, I can't name everyone, who take the time when we partake of the Lord's Supper to describe for us what took place, to cause us to think about the death of Christ. And so often when we do that, we quote from the book of Isaiah. We go looking at what I, Isaiah had to say about Jesus suffering and dying because there's foreknowledge there involved in that. We can know for a fact that not only is God all-knowing, right? We say that he's omniscient. Not only is God all-knowing, but included in that is that he is foreknowing as well. Now, we know what that is, and we can know from the Bible that God has foreknowledge. So you may be saying, well, I got it. What's the point? What's the problem? The sticking point usually with this idea of God's foreknowledge is that some people and maybe even many people will say something like this. Well, if God knows beforehand, before something happens, then it must not matter what I do or how I act or what happens to me because God knows it already and I don't have a choice in the matter. I'm just going to live however I'm going to live and we'll do whatever I want to do because God already knows exactly what I'm going to do. We mentioned the kingdoms. We mentioned King Cyrus. We mentioned the prophecies about Jesus. But for our purposes this morning, and you could probably take a really deep look at this. All right, we could probably spend several weeks on this idea. But for our purposes this morning, there is one more thing that God had foreknowledge about. And it is not that he knew or knows exactly who will be saved and lost, or that there is nothing we can do about it. But what he has foreknowledge of is the plan by which man can be saved. Notice again 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for 
obedience. Obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, God had foreknowledge, but it is about the plan by which man can be saved. Not that, well, there's 10% over here and there's 20% over here, or these are the ones that I've chosen because they've got some kind of mark or, or halo around their head. It's not that. He has foreknowledge of the plan. God didn't pre-plan who would be saved and lost, but he pre-planned how people could be saved from their sins. God's church was not some last-minute plan to cover up an accident or a mistake when Jesus died on the cross. If you were with us a while back, it's been several months ago already now, but we talked about premillennialism on Wednesday night for a few moments. And sometimes that going along with that idea of premillennialism is the concept that Jesus dying on the cross was a surprise to God and to Jesus, that they didn't know that the Jews would reject Jesus, but that's not the case. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Ephesians 3, 8 through 12. Paul would write about the plan of God. He says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the, watch it, eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. The idea here is that the church was in the mind of God from the beginning. It is the eternal purpose. It was accomplished in Christ Jesus, but it required that perfect sacrifice. And then the church came, was going to come into existence so that we could be a part of it. And that is the plan by which man can be saved. God did not pre-plan or does not have the foreknowledge in the sense that he just knows and we don't have a choice. But he did pre-plan the plan by which man could be saved involving his son and involving the church. So we understand that he does have foreknowledge, but it doesn't mean what people usually think that it means. So let's think secondly then about the fact that God has a will. Not only does he have foreknowledge, but 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 2, we see that he has a will. Peter says it plainly that it is the will of God. In fact, Peter says that we should live for the will of God. So it's important if we're supposed to be living for it that we understand it. So what is God's will? What does this mean? Well, we might just kind of boil it down to say it means that he has a desire, that God has a desire. Think about a human will for just a moment. Any, any of you have a human will? Some of you have already put that together. What's going to happen when you die? When you do that, you say, here is my will. Here is my desire of what should happen to my stuff when I die. It's going to be, you know, divvied out among my family or whatever, but this is my desire. This is my will. So we might say that God has a desire for me and for you and for the world of how we should live. This is what he wants to happen for those who choose to be called children of, of his. 
So how do we know that? Well, of course, again, it would help us to consider what the Bible has to say about God's will. Let's notice three other things here real quickly. First of all, Matthew, it's going to be found in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10. Jesus says there what people often call the Lord's Prayer. We might, sometimes often we say that the Lord's Prayer is better found in John chapter 17. But here in Matthew 6, Jesus says, Your kingdom come... Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first thing we notice is that, yes, God has a will. Somebody might debate that. They may not. Some people that don't believe in God don't really care. But, yes, God has a will. And here the Son acknowledges that the Father has a will. Let's go then, secondly, to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 17. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 17. Here then Paul is writing, and he says to them, Therefore, do not be unwise. Okay, we don't want to be unwise. Nobody really wants to be unwise. But then understand what the will of, of the Lord is. So yes, number one, the Father has a will. But secondly, we see that we can know that will. Peter says you're unwise if you pretend it doesn't exist, if you say you can't know it, if you want to be wise, then we need to understand or know what the will of the Father is. Again, add that to our original passage there from Peter, and Peter says we need to then understand it and live it. And so that leads us to our third point. Our third point is we must do it. And we see that, of course, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Jesus says there at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, or towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So not only can we see that God has a will, but we must know it. And number three, we must do it. It seems like it's pretty important to understand God's will or desire for us. Now, if you turned away, let me invite you again back to 1 Peter chapter 4, that section where we were, 1 Peter chapter 4, because Peter has more to say about it. In fact, beginning in verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh, for the lust of men, but on the other hand, for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in, notice, lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, some of you have been with us on Wednesday nights as we've, discussed, as we've studied and discussed the Bible and how we got the Bible in different way, the way that sometimes words are translated. You probably have some different words depending on what you're looking at there in verse number three. But here's the concept or the idea. Peter is saying that God's will or God's desire is the opposite of the world. Peter gives us a list of things there in verse number three that he describes as the will of the Gentiles or the will of the world. And living for the will of God is the opposite of that. If you're going to live for God, then you need to avoid these things. I wish we had time this morning to go through those words. You know some of them. Some of them make sense. Lust and drunkenness and some of these things. But there's ways to look at that and to see maybe exactly what we're talking about. But we understand here's the Gentiles. Here's the ways of the world. And here's 
living for the will of God. God has foreknowledge and God has will, has a will. But let's notice thirdly then, the third part of our assignment is man's choices. Man's choices. Go with me for just a moment in your mind to what we said earlier. That there are some people who believe that you and I, because God has foreknowledge, that you and I, because God has foreknowledge, that you and I don't have a choice. That's what some people would have us believe. That God has chosen for us where we will spend eternity. But you know now what we need to do, as we've done already this morning. Let's see what the Bible has to say. First, some Old Testament passages. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19. Moses, as he is about to die... Moses says to the children of Israel, Deuteronomy 30, 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. What does that sound like? Sounds like Moses is saying we have a choice. Joshua chapter 24 in verse 15, Joshua is about to die. And he echoes those same words. And of course, most of us have this as a reminder, maybe on the walls of our house or, or somewhere that we can see it. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. A choice. Moses is dying and he says, what I want to leave with you is that you have a choice. Joshua is dying. He says, what I want to leave with you is that you have a choice. Even in 1 Kings chapter 18, as Elijah is there, he's not dying in this moment, but he's on Mount Carmel, fixing to go through that great battle. And he asked the people, how long halt ye between two opinions? How long will you falter between two opinions or two choices? Choose. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal be God, follow him. It's a choice. And even Jesus, of course. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, when he tells the people about the narrow and the broad gate, he is implying that the people had a choice. Choose which gate you're going to enter by. We all have a choice. Young and old have a choice. Everyone has a choice. Here this morning, everyone in the world has a choice. God made us in his own image to be able to make choices and decide what we will do, where we will go, what we will wear, who we will date and marry, what we will say, and where we will spend eternity. We absolutely have a choice. So then let's notice what's the connection. We've kind of defined the words here and talked about God's foreknowledge, God's will, and man's choices. What's the connection? What's the purpose of considering these words from Peter? Well, first of all, it's that God did choose. God chose, but what he chose was the plan. And his chosen people are not those who are randomly picked by him, but those who obey him. We say sometimes, I think I said it recently, maybe in one of our lessons, but we often, some people will say, well, well, the church is very exclusive. You know, the church is very exclusive because you've got to follow all these rules. You've got to do exactly what the Bible says. And in that sense, I guess it is. But we notice that it's also very inclusive because anyone, anyone, as our children often sing, red, yellow, black, and white, anyone, American or African or anywhere, male and female, can choose to be obedient. It is very inclusive when it comes to that idea. 
God chose, but also he chose beforehand the plan. He has that foreknowledge, but that foreknowledge involves, secondly, the plan. We say it quite often, but he could have made us robots, right? He could have made us robots in which we simply just do whatever he says when he puts the thought in our minds without ever having a choice. He could have made us robots. Also, he could have pre-selected certain people. He could have said, well, you got to have blonde hair or you got to be a certain height or you can only be a certain gender, but he could have pre-selected certain people. Or, as we've said countless times, he could have told us that we got to go to Jerusalem, right? Every person, if you want to be saved, has to go to Jerusalem and you've got to set foot there or you've got to touch a certain rock. or you've got, He could have done anything in those particular ways to tell us to be saved. But what he did do was he chose a plan that included not only sending his only begotten son who suffered, died, was buried, and rose again, but also that plan involves a very specific set of instructions that all make perfect sense. We talked about this on Tuesday night at the gospel meeting. It was a lesson that I had done here before in 2020, and some of you that were there heard that again, but let me share with those who weren't able to be there. It just flows naturally. You have to believe in Christ. What would motivate you to do anything if you do not believe? Because we often boil down the plan of salvation to our fingertips. We say, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. And people act like it's not a big deal, but it actually flows perfectly. Because once you hear something, hopefully you will believe it. Why are you going to come to services? Why are you going to change your life if you do not believe? But if you do believe, then you're going to want to repent. You're going to believe in Jesus. You're going to say, well, that's going to motivate me to change my mind, which shows in a change of life. I'm going to quit living the way I was living, and I'm going to do something different because I believe in Jesus. I believe in the one they call Jesus, as we sometimes sing. If you believe in Jesus, you'll want to confess, confess him, right? You'll want to tell everybody. We emphasize sometimes that moment right here, right, in the water where we do it, and that's, that's okay, that's right. We confess him before man. But we should want to confess him before anybody we meet if we truly believe. And it causes us to want to repent. And we do repent. We should want to confess that we believe that he is the son of God. And what a better way to show obedience than to participate with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. We die to ourselves. We're buried or immersed in water. And then we rise again to walk in newness of life. Some people make it just this trivial moment or something that's not a big deal, but it's being gospel obedient, obeying with Christ the things that he had, the way that he has lived and what he has done. God's will is that man choose to obey the plan. So what's the application? What does it mean for us? It means that God has foreknowledge, but we also have a choice. And those things do not have to be in disagreement. So that's where the problem comes in. Many people say, well, God has foreknowledge. He must know who's going to be saved or what I'm going to do, and then I don't have choice. That's not true. If he made the plan and wants you to obey it, and we have a choice, then what will you do? What will you choose, even this morning? As Charles often says, we extend heaven's invitation to you If you'd like to put your Bible or notes up and and get your songbook out, we're about to sing this song in just a moment. When we think about God's foreknowledge and his will for us, we certainly can think about those things and realize that we still have a choice. 
We sing a song of encouragement. We sing a song as we extend heaven's invitation because it's that important. Some, so many places nowadays have kind of stopped extending the invitation. And I get that there's nowhere in the Bible that says that thou shalt or that we are mandated to every time. But what a better way to conclude our time together at the end of studying God's word than to ask you if you need to make a change. Have you made a choice? You see, maybe you're like the people who just put it off. Put it off, put it off, and, and don't think about it. You've not made a choice, but as we know, you've actually made a choice. And your choice is to say, not right now, or maybe later. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God, why not? Why not make that choice this morning, or allow us the opportunity to study with you as soon as possible? It's the greatest choice that a person can make. Who you marry is important. Where you live, what you do, all those things are important. Don't get me wrong. But they mean nothing if you miss out on heaven. You miss out on eternity with God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit. As we are gathered here in this moment, do you need to make a change in your life? Maybe it's becoming a child of God, or maybe you are a child of God, but you've wandered away. Your choice has changed in the sense that you've stopped living for the will of God, and you started living for self. The Bible describes that as living for the flesh. If you're here this morning and you've been doing that, maybe it's a public sin that you'd like to come to the front. One of our elders will be here in just a moment to talk with you and to pray with you and for you so that we can let the congregation know publicly about your change of life, your repentance, so that we can pray with you and for you that you could be restored. Maybe you'd like the prayers of the church to encourage you. We're thankful for the opportunity to make a choice, even with God's foreknowledge and his will. But that leaves us with a choice. Even in this moment, would you become a Christian or come back to him, even now as we stand together and as we sing?